0: We're in week 19 of our series on biblical and Reformed worship. And I'm trying to wrap this up because Kim Brinkley, wherever he's at, uh, is starting our next series here in a few weeks and he's chomping at the bit to get started. Uh, But the last few weeks we've been focusing on the uniqueness of corporate worship and God's instruction regarding corporate worship. Of course, we've begun... Uh, In these 19 weeks, we began by looking at worship in general, then we looked at private worship. And so we've made our way, finally, to the uniqueness of corporate worship and what God has called us together to do as a community. And our specific focus last week, and then this week as well, is on the day of worship. On the day of worship. We began last week by asking questions such as, Has God given us instruction as to how often and when we ought to gather in corporate worship? Private worship, of course, is the duty of every Christian, every day. But what about coming together as a people of God? What about when we come together to preach and to sing and to pray and to observe the Lord's Supper? Has God given us instruction or is it just whatever we think is best? That's what we've been considering. But also, the flip side of this we've been considering is, how do we, the church leaders specifically, define what it means to forsake the assembly? How do we define that? The writer of the Hebrews says to the church, do not forsake the assembly of gathering yourselves together. What does that mean? Does it mean... Okay, the pastor just has that authority to decide when you're forsaking the assembly? Or has God given us some kind of clear, objective instruction here? That's the questions that kind of opened up this topic that we consider, began looking at last week. So, to answer this question, we start, started all the way, Creation. We talked about how God blessed the seventh, seventh day and made it holy. And that the blessing was for our sake, not for His. He did it for us, for His creation. And I argued last week that the pattern of six days of work and one day of rest is woven into creation. That it's, kind of, it's the makeup of this world. It's intrinsic to this created order. We can't work all the time. Um, We work ourselves to death. It's not healthy. It's not good for us to devote every single day of our lives to work. But there's a pattern here that is healthy, resting and working. I also argued last week that the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, appeals to creation for its justification. It says, for God made the world in six days, and He rested and made it holy. Therefore, you remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And I argue that Jesus in Mark two twenty seven appeals to this idea as well. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I argued from that is that we can't just mark it off as something that's mosaic, part of the mosaic covenant. We can't just say that's the Old Testament. We don't have to worry about that. I think there's, there's, there's more complexity to this issue. It's rooted in creation. Now, ultimately, the justification for this is how Jesus and the Apostles used Scripture. Again, this is all review of what we covered last week. How does Jesus and the, apostle use, the Apostles use the creation account to, uh, account to teach? I noted that when they taught on marriage and divorce, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Is it okay? Is divorce permissible? What does he do? He goes to creation to give his answer. Apostle Paul, when, they, when he talks about the roles of men and women in the church, He goes to creation. They point back to Genesis to support their teaching, but it's interesting that creation doesn't explicitly speak on those issues. They make theological deductions. Well, because God joined them as one flesh from the beginning, divorce is not right, it is sinful. That's what Jesus says, even though the text in Genesis doesn't say you shall not get divorced. Same with men's and women's roles, things of that nature. So from that I argued that, oh yeah, from that I argued that we too can go back to creation and make some theological deductions based upon the entire scope of Scripture as well. That we don't need to go to creation and say, well, because God did not tell man you must keep one day in seven then it's not permissible. No, we can can make these deductions based upon how they use Scripture and based upon the teaching of Scripture as a whole. And then finally last week, we looked at the moral nature of the Ten Commandments. They're treated in Scripture as an indivisible unit. They broadly define Christian love and obedience towards God and man. Again, broadly. The rest of the Scripture's Bear that out. The list of sins in Scripture, uh, excuse me, in the New Testament, um, are, are deductions from these Ten Commandments and they're, are more detailed. But the, uh, they broadly define Christian love and obedience, even though some of the historical and contextual details have changed, specifically with the Fourth Commandment. So that's what we covered That's the background to what we're going to cover today. We're going to wrap up this subject. We're going to look at why do we gather on Sunday. Look more at the New Testament for this. And I'm going to get into some technical exegetical stuff, so you're going to have to hang with me a little bit. Um, But it's it's going to get better, I promise, because next week, next two weeks, we're going to move on from the day of worship and we're going to talk about what the scriptures have to say regarding liturgy or order of worship. And music, styles of music, different cultural uh, expressions of music, hymns versus songs, contemporary versus traditional, all that, good stuff. And it looks like like next week we'll have a full house with the rest of the students back, so <laughs> it ought to be fun. Are there any questions before Oh yeah, and, and then of course, beginning in September. Uh, Three weeks from now, hopefully. How People Change is our next Sunday School series, um, which is a book by Paul Tripp that we're going to be walking through in our Sunday School hour. Are there any questions before we jump in? Then let's jump in. All right. The day of worship. Built upon what we considered last week, I want to look at the New Testament. I want us to note that Jesus frequently spoke about the Sabbath. I hear it a lot. I hear, well, the New Testament never mentions the Sabbath, so Christians are not obligated to keep it. But I think this is um, a little bit reductionistic because Jesus spoke quite a bit on the Sabbath. He frequently brought it up. Um, He frequently used it as a point of contention with the Pharisees to oppose their understanding of it. So, I don't think it's fair to say that the New Testament doesn't instruct Christians regarding the Sabbath because Christian, Jesus speaks a lot about it. Specifically, what I'm going to look at today is he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And I think that's important. But well, what does he mean by this? Any guesses? What does he mean by when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath? He's in, charge of it. He's in charge of it. That's right. You think of a Lord, you think of a ruler, right? An authority. Yeah. So he can abolish it. He can change it. He can properly define it, right? Well, I'm going to argue that under Christ's lordship, it is a gift and a blessing to man, Mark two twenty-seven, And it takes on characteristics appropriate to Christ's reign and the new covenant. That's my thesis. It becomes uniquely Christian instead of uniquely Jewish. So, the Christian Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, or the first day of the week, is similar to the Jewish Sabbath. Jewish Jewish Sabbath. It is organically connected to the Jewish Sabbath. I can't say that <laughs> to the mosaic Sabbath, <laughs> but it is not like the Jewish Sabbath. And we briefly considered these last week. Colossians two sixteen this the Sabbath is a um, the Sabbath is uh, a type and shadow of Christ. Paul says. Let no one judge you regarding a new moon, a Sabbath, or a festival. Romans 14, uh, each one esteems esteems one day alike. Uh, Others esteem every day alike. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. Galatians 4, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I feel like I've labored in vain, Paul tells them. You're going back to the Old Testament. I want to argue that the Jewish Sabbath has been abolished. But that doesn't mean it's completely disconnected to the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, because I believe they're organically uh, connected. Even though the externals change, underneath, um, there is continuity there. So, that's kind of my thesis The Sabbath takes on characteristics appropriate to the reign of Christ and the new covenant which is made in Christ. But let's think about it more specifically, why Jesus calls Himself the Lord of the Sabbath. I believe this recalls how God previously referred to the Sabbath in the Old Testament as my holy day. This is a refrain, refrain that recurs several times, but God repeatedly refers to the Sabbath in the Old Testament as my holy day. It's mine, He says. And I think this is brought together and made explicit in Revelation 1.10 where John refers to being in the Spirit on whose holy day? on the Lord's Day. So I believe Revelation 1.10 and Isaiah 58.13 are speaking of the same thing. There is a day... Well, I guess I'm going to get into this. Alright, I don't want to get, get ahead. Revelation 1.10, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. My holy day, Isaiah chapter 58. This is a day that is uniquely the Lord's. In fact, in Revelation, the adjective used here, the Greek... It pertains to belonging to the Lord. It is a day that belongs to the Lord. I was in the Spirit on the day that belongs to the Lord. That's literally how we would tr- translate Revelation 1.10. The other use of this term, this um, adjective um, connected to the Lord, the only other use in the New Testament occurs in 1 Corinthians 11 when speaking of the Lord's Supper. Right, It is the Lord's Supper. And this implies special ownership. There's a lot of suppers in the world we would eat. But one of them is unique and set apart because it's the Lord's. It's distinct from every other supper that we would normally eat in our lives. And I'm going to say the same is true for the Lord's Day. There are many days... But there is one that is uniquely His. That uniquely belongs to Him. Let's parse this out even more. So Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, recalls the language of my holy day. This is... um, My holy day in Isaiah, Jesus comes saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He's making a claim to deity there. He's making a claim to be God. And I believe that's brought together in Revelation chapter 1, when it's talked about the Lord's day. There's a connection in all three of these. Any questions on that point? I'm going to parse this out a little bit more. You're looking at me like, okay... So moving on from this, but building upon that, I believe the key is found in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. In fact, I'm going to put a few of the verses on the screen, but the full context... So Hebrews chapter 4, of course, the writer of the Hebrews is pinning a letter, or actually we believe it's a sermon to the church. A church that is wavering. A church that doesn't recognize the supremacy of Jesus as the high priest. A church that is tempted to turn back to the things of Judaism, to the Old Testament sacrifices, to the rituals of the law. And the, the basic exhortation of the whole book is perseverance in faith, in what you confessed, in what you believed. And so here in Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians, in Hebrews 4, he draws a parallel between the Old Testament people of God and their rest, and the New Testament people of God in our rest. And so he starts out in verse 1, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, lest let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's His general point. There is a rest, God's rest, that we are called to reach. And while that promise is still here, before God's judgment is poured out, be careful lest you fail to reach it. What is the rest he's talking about? Well, he continues. Verse somewhere sp- He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all His works. Again, which appeals to creation. Remember, I kind of made that argument before. The Ten Commandments on the Sabbath appeal to creation. Jesus in Mark 2 appeals to creation on the Sabbath. Hebrews 4 appeals to creation on the Sabbath. And then he starts to argue from the typology to the reality. For if Joshua had given them rest, who's Joshua? Joshua was the one commissioned to go into the land of Canaan, the land of rest, conquer the enemies of God, and establish it for the people of God. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, so the land of Canaan isn't this rest I'm talking about. It's only an earthly picture. There's a reality. The reality is not on this earth. That's an earthly picture, is what he's saying. And what is that earthly picture? Well, excuse me, what is that earthly picture? It's Canaan. What is the heavenly picture? Anybody know? Heaven. The land of Canaan typifies the new heavens and the new earth that we are given. That's our promised land. That's the land flowing with milk and honey. That's where we will have rest from all of our labors. So this point, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is something that's future. This is something that we still await. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's the exhortation. Strive to enter this rest. Don't fall in your disobedience like the people in Israel, and they died in the wilderness. Alright, so what does he mean by this? What I'm going to do is focus on verses 9-10 through here. There remains a future Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from, God, God did from his. I think I made a mistake there. There remains. I put. Um, I added the word future. That was an accident. Sorry. <laughs> there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, is what the text says. I added that. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I meant to just give a quote of the passage, but I guess I got my subheadings mixed up. But this is what I want to focus on here. These two verses. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, as you couldn't already tell, <laughs> there is a future rest spoken of. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it's key there that you think about that carefully. Because some people will say, well, the Sabbath rest is faith in Christ. So there remains people who don't have faith in Christ to have faith in Christ. But he's saying that for the people of God, for the people who are in Christ, there's a future Sabbath rest that remains. That's heaven. Heaven. The consummation of the Sabbath hasn't come yet. You guys understand what I mean by that? The full reality of it has not come yet. The Sabbath isn't just fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. The example I gave last week I'll return to. The analogy of marriage. The people of God are the bride of Christ. Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that marriage, particularly, is a picture of Christ in the church. Have you heard this before, guys? Luke and Abby? I, I, okay. <laughs> they were married two weeks ago, and I did, that's what I preached on at their wedding. So, uh, Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. The ultimate consummation of marriage, the typology of marriage, is a relationship between Christ and His people. Does that mean then that we've reached that full consummation and thus we can cast off all rules or boundaries of marriage? No, it doesn't. I'm going to argue the same is true with the Sabbath. Just like we don't say, well... Since I'm married to Jesus, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, doesn't apply to me anymore because my marriage is in Christ and I can now do whatever I want. We can't say the same about the fourth commandment either. Well, because Jesus is the Sabbath, then it doesn't matter. The The fourth commandment has no relation to me either. I'm saying that this is future and there's still an earthly type that points to a heavenly reality. And that earthly type is when the people of God gather in worship. On the Lord's Day. That's the earthly type that still remains. Alright, let's keep on going on here. I want to focus on this term now. So we established that it it's future. But what is this? For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Who is the whoever in verse 10? Who's that referring to? I'm going to argue differently. Oh, okay. <laughs> it is, yes, indirectly. But you've got to let me get there. Sure. <laughs> is this referring to the Christian who puts off his dead works to rest in Christ? Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Rest from your good works to try to earn your way to heaven. The Sabbath rest is what the writer is saying. And have faith in Christ. Is that what he's saying? I, I think I'm confused by what, what do you mean by dead works? Um, the argument goes, oh, you weren't here on Wednesday night. We talked about this on Wednesday night. The argument goes that for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, describes the Christian who pursues the Sabbath rest not by works, but by faith. Because there's a future Sabbath rest, how do we get in it? We rest in Christ. That's what people argue, and that's what I'm arguing against. And I know you're nodding like, that sounds right. And it does sound right. And there's definitely an illusion there, without a doubt. I think there's an element of truth here. But I don't think that's precisely what the author is saying, and I'll show why in a second. I don't think this is referring... And so they use this to say, you see, faith in Christ is our obedience to the Sabbath. That's all it is. Faith in Christ is our obedience to the Sabbath. Interpreting it this way is how they make that argument. And again, undoubtedly, there is some truth to this. We do rest from our works. Excuse me, uh, cease our works to rest in Christ. That is the means by which we obtain the Sabbath rest. No doubt, I think there's an allusion to that in this verse here. But I don't think that's the specific point that he's trying to make. Who is the whoever? Well, John Owen, in his Massive commentary on Hebrews argues that this refers to Jesus Christ. The whoever is a reference to Christ. You're like, okay, how does he get there? That doesn't make sense. Hear me out. Or hear him out. Kim, did you have a comment? Well. Ah, you're a little, you're thinking ahead. All right. Good. 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 Let me get there and I'll answer your question. Next week. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> First, he argues that it's Christ reference to Christ because it's improper to compare our rest from sinful works, dead works, right, trying to earn our favor with God, with God's rest in creation. He's like, that analogy doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. Put it this way. What are the works that believers should be said here to rest from? Their sins, say some. Their labors, their sorrows, their sufferings, say others. They're trying to merit good works to obtain rest, say others. But how can they be said to rest from these works as God rested from His own? This is not to rest... As God rested. That's the analogy given. Rest like God has rested. Well, that really mixes up faith versus works. Because our rest is obtained by the good works of Christ on our behalf. Are we clear? The analogy doesn't match up. But there's a second reason. What's behind door number two? Throughout this section, Kim, the writer repeatedly refers to the rest of the believer in the plural. Let us therefore fear, for we who believe do enter. But here he changes it to the third person singular. He. He. That's the second argument for why this is a reference to Christ. Switches from the plural to the singular in a moment. Third reason. In verse 10 the rest is completed. All right, look follow along with me and read verse 10. Whoever has entered, that is completed. God's rest. Has entered. It's done. It's over. It's past tense. Has entered. You have entered the church building, right? It's over. You're not still entering. You're here. In verse 10, the rest is complete. But in verse 11, he makes it clear that the responsibility to enter that rest through persevering faith still remains. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. Got that? Switches from the plural to singular, switches from the past tense to the present. Because he's talking about two different things. One man and the people of God. One eternal rest and the rest that still awaits us. Finally, it's clear from the next few verses that Jesus Christ is the focus of the entire passage. Verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Yes, I believe that it's not talking about our paper, our Bible. The Word of God is living and active, is a reference to Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. That's the most particular manifest, uh, point that he's making there. Then verse 14, since we have this great high priest, he goes on from there as well. So Jesus is the subject. He's not just, you, you can't say, okay, well where's Jesus in the context? How's whoever refer to Jesus, he's nowhere in the context. Well, he's everywhere in the context. Alright, so all that to say, let's draw some conclusions on Hebrews 4 and wrap this up. How does that get to the day of worship? Well, here's what I believe Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 4 is saying. You've got to follow me, put on your theological thinking caps here. The believer, fallen in Adam, has not finished the labor of the covenant of works set before him. Or I should say, maybe not the believer, but... All humans. Everybody. If you look at this with covenantal glasses, the Sabbath in creation was set before man to obtain that rest through obedience. It's called the covenant of works, the obligation that God put upon Adam to obey. He failed, the covenant still stands. We're all under the covenant of works. We were created to obey. We've all disobeyed. We've fallen in Adam. That's the analogy that's, that's, that's kind of set up here. So, in Hebrews, it's not a reference to the believers resting from their dead works, but instead, the analogy, the comparison, is between the finished work of God in creation and the finished work of Christ in redemption. Did you get that? God completed His work on the seventh, day, sixth day and rested on the Sabbath. Christ completed His work in redemption as well and has entered that final rest. That's the analogy that He's drawing. Adam failed to obtain the creation rest But Christ succeeded in fulfilling it in His work of redemption. He entered the rest that was set before all of man in the creation account. That's why He's spoken of as the whoever has entered God's rest has rested from His works as God did from His. Jesus Christ obeyed the law to the letter and obtained the rest that God set before man, because Jesus Christ is man. So, just as the fourth commandment calls the people of God to imitate their Creator, by resting on the Sabbath, just as God worked and then rested in creation, the author of Hebrews is his point, calls the people of God to imitate their recreator, Jesus Christ, because He's finished His work and has entered His rest as well. He's saying Christ has entered that rest. That rest that still waits you. He has conquered. Don't think that you getting your land here on earth is what God is concerned about. He's called you to rest in faith and hope in Christ, who has accomplished and entered that rest. That's His point. And so the conclusion here, I believe, and I'm going to pull this together in a second, but the weekly Sabbath continues, not as a reminder of the seventh day and the need to fulfill the covenant of works, right? You are to work, Adam, six days, and then maybe obtain that rest. That's what the original Sabbath and the Mosaic Sabbath were called. And it's not a day of bondage that we can never live up to, as the Pharisees treated it. But it is a weekly reminder of Christ's finished work. And it is a pledge of that rest by which, rest of God by which we will enter by faith a weekly reminder that the work is done. And you can go out from here with joy, resting in the One who has obtained that Sabbath rest for you. And so how does this have to do with the first day of the week? Well, we believe that in the New Testament, the Jewish Sabbath was abolished And that the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, was inaugurated to be the first day of the week. No longer is the Sabbath a sign of what must be accomplished by working and then resting. That's what it signified in the Old Covenant. That's done, that's over. It's an aspect of the covenant of works. But now the Sabbath serves as a pledge of what has been accomplished in Christ. Again, as I just said a minute ago, where we first rest in Him, before then working the rest of the week in light of the mercies of God, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And this radical change in perspective, as the Lord of the Sabbath, as under the New Covenant, Explains the change in the day. Again, a lot of information here. I know, I know. If you have a question, just raise your hand. But I'm wrapping things up here so we can at least have five minutes for discussion. The early church recognized the connection between the abided normative Sabbath, I would say the morality of the fourth commandment, and the corporate worship of the New Testament church. And I believe that they followed the Lord's, excuse me, in following the Lord's resurrection, and likely in demonstration of the discontinuities between the Mosaic Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, and the Lord's Day. The apostles in the New Testament church began gathering for worship on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. In honor of what the Christian Sabbath now embodies. And we see this in many places throughout Scripture, the New Testament. No other day is mentioned in the New Testament. But it's interesting how this phrase, the first day of the week, keeps popping up. Think about that. How many times can you hear, can you recall in Scripture, uh, and on the third day of the week, they gathered together. Or on the third day of the week, anything. Or on the fifth day of the week, no other day is mentioned in the New Testament. But this first day of the week, pops up several times, and it's always connected to worship. Thus, as I kind of argued last week, the imagery, the typology, the symbolism of the Lord's day, Christ's day of resurrection, is critical to our enjoyment and edification of it. What do I mean by that? Well, what if, We talked about it last week, so I won't rehash everything. But the question was, can we meet on Fridays for church instead of on Sundays? Well, just like bread and wine are important to the imagery of the Lord's Supper, I believe that gathering on the first day of the week is important as well. Because that's the day our Lord rose. Because that's the day that foretastes the Sabbath that we will enter. So the imagery is important to our worship. All right, to conclude and wrap all of this up, We gather in weekly worship following the pattern of creation. Weekly worship. Following the pattern and instruction of the fourth commandment. One day in seven. Weekly. Following the pattern of Old Testament worship. They gathered in worship weekly. So we don't gather quarterly. We don't gather yearly. We don't gather monthly. We gather weekly. And that also defines the limit of the authority of the officers in the church to define what it means to forsake the assembly of the brethren. No officer can bring church discipline upon you for forsaking the assembly if you're faithful to the Lord's Day gathering. That defines what it means to forsake the assembly. But also, we gather on Sunday, not just... Okay, we gather in weekly, not quarterly or monthly because of this. Why do we gather on Sunday? Well, we follow the pattern of our Lord, entering rest in His resurrection, accomplishing that covenant of works, following the pattern and instruction of the church in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16.1. Paul does say, when you come together on the first day of the week, do this... There's some connect, specific connection he makes between, this is when you come together. So We follow the pattern and instruction of the New Testament church, and we keep the imagery and the symbolism intact for the peace of the church. So that we all gather on the same day, we all know that, the universal church. We don't have the church down the street on Friday, the church up the road on Thursday, and us on Sunday, The universal church gathers on the same day for its peace and for its edification, again, as a foretaste. This is the day that Christ rose. And this has implications on the next six days of this week for me. And I, by faith, am to make use of those for the good of my soul. So that's all that's going to be said on the day of worship. Worship. Kind of gave a 30,000 foot view. We've talked about this a lot in um, midweek Bible study and other conversations. But I want to give you at least a little theological education uh, or justification for why we gather on Sunday and why corporate worship ought to be on Sunday. And that's kind of what I wanted. That was my goal. Any questions? Any comments? Rebukes and rebuttals? Responses. Kim. I was if you could explain a little bit more what it means to strive to enter into our rest. Just in general? Just perseverance. Like- the theme of the book of Hebrews is perseverance. Think of um, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame. Okay. You have all these that have gone before us. What is he detailing? How they've all suffered. How they all faced hardship, how they all faced uncertainty, poverty, affliction, persecution. And yet, by faith, they persevered. To strive to enter that rest is to persevere in the faith and not turn back in the face of difficulty. Again, he's not, he's not saying strive to obey the weekly Sabbath. Don't, don't, mis- don't think that I'm saying that. His point is much larger than the weekly Sabbath. He uses the weekly Sabbath as an analogy to talk about the perseverance in faith. But his exhortation is, cling to Christ. And don't let anything turn you back, circumstance-wise. I know you guys aren't all convinced. I I've been thinking a good bit lately about death. So I guess there is a sense in which when we die, we enter into rest. Mm-hmm. But it would be fair to say, based on some of the arguments you may hear, that that rest is not consummated fully until we, like Christ, are glorified, bodies are resurrected, glorified. That would that be an extension of your argument there, that our rest will take on a different characteristics perhaps, when we are resurrected and glorified? That- That's a great point. Think of the souls under the altar in Revelation. Lord, how long till you avenge us? There's some unrest there. And I believe the Scripture also teaches that the body separated from the soul create is unnatural. And create some unrest. Despite what we hear nowadays of you know, floating on clouds and now you're free. Now that you're dead, you're free. And No, the body and the soul are meant for each other. And there isn't the consummation of the new creative work of God until the body and soul are united and we are raised. But also I think of Revelation 14, 13 where John says, this is in the midst of his vision, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. There's a spoken uh, death in the Lord is, a spoken, is spoken of as a rest from your labors, which again connects to Hebrews 4. Whoever's entered that rest has rested from his labors. Um, We strive to enter that rest. Good works and faith. It's a striving. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We do that until we enter that rest. First, in the presence of God upon our death for those in Christ, but ultimately when Christ raises our bodies. Great point. All right, we've got to wrap up. Uh, Let's close in prayer.